0: Greetings to everyone around the world, and a warm welcome to another edition of Veritas at VeritasRadio.com. I'm your host, Mal Fabregas, and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time, please make yourself at home. To listen to tonight's full interview, you know what to do. Simply go to our website, VeritasRadio.com, if you're not already there, and click on the subscribe button. Expand your horizons. And give yourself the gift of truth. And for pure organic sulfur crystals, MMS, or our futuristic mail cased USB drives, with all our seasons and bonus material, go to the Veritas store. And by popular demand, tonight's special guest is best selling author and investigative journalist, former law enforcement officer, and senior executive in the technology sector, David Pilatis. We'll discuss more mysterious disappearances in national parks and his new book, Missing 411, The Devil's in the Detail. And to learn more about David Polites and purchase all his books, visit his website at canamissing.com, which is also linked at ours. And directly from Colorado, I'd like to welcome David Politis. Hello, David, and welcome back to Veritas.
1: Hey, thanks, Mel. I appreciate it. Uh, It's always a good time spending... uh, some interesting uh, time talking to you about the
0: cases. Absolutely. And usually I would introduce and talk about how you started in all of this, and but we accomplished that already. And anyone can listen to our first interview on our website. I want to leverage these two hours as much as we can without being repetitive. And as you say in the new book, we're not going to delve deeply into details to prep the listeners for an understanding of the issue. To the listeners, Please stop the audio right now and listen to the first interview if you have not done so before. That way you'll be able to, to have a clear understanding of what we'll be discussing uh, tonight. But first, David, the new book about the the title, The Devil's in the Detail. Why the title?
1: Well, first of all, detail is an important part when you're doing research. And uh, there's, there's that old saying, the devil is in the detail, and it's true. And uh, the stories are nice. And the dates are nice, but really you need to get down into the nitty-gritty, get down into the dirt and start really figuring out what is the commonality between each of these. The other part of that is that uh, in earlier books, there have been an abnormal amount of people that have disappeared in areas where the name devil appears in the geographical location. Devil's Lookout, Devil's Mountain, Devil Lakes. It just seems like an abnormal amount and too many coincidences to just ignore it.
0: Absolutely. And, you know, I wonder how many times have you been denied information? We see this all the time in your cases. How many times have you been denied information about a certain case and, and you're told you'll never get information about this case? What is the reason they give you, if any? And have you appealed or sought a judicial review after, you know, requesting a FOIA request?
1: Well, the the outright... And the straight up denial has happened just once, and that was on the Stacy Harris case at Yosemite, and that was verbally told to me on the phone with a National Park Service special agent. And no, they never gave a specific reason why I would get it, uh, why I wouldn't get it, otherwise, other than I just wasn't gonna get it. And their other denials are more contrived, and either they make the dollar amount to get the the report's so exorbitant that nobody could afford it, and they say $1.4 million for a list of missing people from their entire system, or more recently, $7,100 for them to review a file on a case that uh, where Ranger disappeared. So they, they put roadblocks in front of you, and I, I suppose you could call that their way of denying it.
0: Do you think that this happens just to you, because your name is probably very public out there?
1: You know, I'd like to say I hope not, but I have a gut feeling that this is more organized than we may think. And uh, there have been other people, in fact, other National Park Service rangers uh, that have foia the National Park Service over details and have run into roadblocks before as well. So to say that this is the first for the National Park Service, I would definitely say not. It seems that they have a long history of not being as transparent as they would like the public to think. And in reality, they, their interpretation of the Freedom of Information Act is quite different than many other departments in our government.
0: And the words missing and presumed dead, this is something that the Department of Interior uses a lot. How can people find those who are lost if they're removed or purged from a database on a a case that should not be purged. Well,
1: that, that seems to be a pretty convenient way to wash your hands of many missing persons cases and sweep it away and say, well, the person's presumed dead. They're not really missing anymore. And that's their way to permanently get rid of the case. They won't be found on any databases. They won't be classified as missing people. And if I did... Come up with the 1.4 million for the list of missing people in the National Park Service, I have no doubt that those cases would not appear because they're no longer missing. They're under this new classification, missing presumed dead. And with that, um, it, it's a very, very convenient way to keep the numbers down, keep yeah. the public unaware of how many people are missing. And it's unfortunate because when I first found it, I couldn't believe it existed
0: heaven forbid, you or I or anyone listening loses a loved one. How do you think they'll feel if their loved one is considered presumed dead without any proof? Actually, I wouldn't have a problem as long as the name is on the list so we can continue searching.
1: I I think anybody would be astounded that the, the National Park Service would do something like that and that it may be a policy in the Department of the Interior that may be more widespread than we understand. And there's a very, very good chance that some of the cases that I've found, uh, just through digging through newspaper archives, etc., may never have been found and may never be understood if we haven't brought them out to light. And with that, I'll, I'll transcend to something else, Mel. It's something called uh, NamUs. And NamUs is an organization that was founded within the National Institute of Justice, and it was just for this type of thing. And uh, we were contacted by a Namus researcher um, maybe a year ago, and she had read one of the books, and she said, "Dave, I think you have cases that need to go on the Namus website." And what Namus is is it's a website specifically used by law enforcement, coroners, forensic uh, people that come up with bones in the woods, just like they would find in the national parks where there's no longer any reports and they can match reports to the bones and get closure for a family. Turns out that there's, I think, eight or 10 cases now that NamUs has from us that they never had before because we were able to get the original police reports and things to substantiate the case, put it on Namus's website, and now if those bodies are ever found, they may be able to link the DNA between the two individuals or the, the case report and the individual. Without NamUs, there probably wouldn't be any way to do it other than mere guesswork.
0: No, if the National Park Service classifies the missing as missing and presumed dead, then what happens when the coroner and medical examiners receive recovered remains? Can they place the bones with the body?
1: Well, when NamUs explained that there's rooms in coroner's offices in Oregon and Washington that are filled with unknown bones that they have found in the woods, and they can't match them to anybody's. So therein lies the problem with the National Park Service and the Department of the Interior's policy. And like I said, it may be an absolutely contrived and organized policy in order to keep the numbers down so people truly don't know how many people are missing.
0: And I think we discussed this in our last interview, but I'm not a trained investigator like you are, but logic tells me that They're just sweeping the names under the rug to avoid panic. Imagine if you go to X Y Z Park and find out there are hundreds of people missing. Would you go in there? They just don't want the public to be aware of the dangers that exist in the woods, as they may, you know, it can affect tourism and how many millions of dollars can be lost.
1: it's, It's it could be mind boggling.
0: So do you think this is the main reason why they want to keep this under the rug to avoid people from saying, you know, family, let's don't go to this park this year because this may happen to us?
1: Well, I've already had people write to me and tell me that uh, I've, I've put them on notice and, you know, they I've made the books have made them more aware of these issues. But the reality of it is, is that I, I don't discourage anybody from going to our parks. I tell them to go to the parks and... Uh, carry a transponder, keep your children inside at all times, don't get separated, and don't hike alone. And I think under those parameters, you're generally going to be fairly safe. But it does seem that there's an abnormal amount of missing people in national parks.
0: You know, reading your books, I find so many similarities between the cases. And I find it interesting that law enforcement, it's not that they're not doing a good job, but they haven't broken the quote-unquote code of these cases, since there's a repetitive nature of the elements that exist on these disappearances. Do you you find that peculiar?
1: Well, you got to remember, Mel, that law enforcement works in a confined area. Say you have a county sheriff. Well, he's responsible for his county. And let's say you have a state police officer. Well, they're responsible for their state. But there's nobody really that's looking at the gravity of the problem when you look at, say, the United States and Canada, and then you start look at North America as a whole, and then you start to put the care, together the cases jurisdiction by jurisdiction. Unfortunately, missing people is the bastard child of law enforcement. And I don't, I've never known an an investigator that's wanted to work missing persons cases. And the reason being is that missing people, many of them disappear on their own. They don't want to be around and there's no crime to that. But when you spend, say, a hundred hours tracking down a missing person and you find them and it's just somebody who wants, and then you have people that, Say a teenager that just runs away because he doesn't want to be or she doesn't want to be with her parents. Well, that's still a missing person and somebody you got to track down. So you get these kind of cases that to some law enforcement people may seem meaningless and a waste of time, but then you run into an issue like this, or say a string of homicides on the highway of tears, where there's hundreds of missing people, missing women up in the Canada and British Columbia area, you start to get into something like that, and it starts to get much more interesting quickly. So it's a national or continent issue here, and then it's an issue in other countries. And then you start to think of it, and, and just like you said, once you read the books and you start to understand the underlying current to the issue and the parallel issues that exist in amongst the different cases start to find out that, well, this is a much more intriguing thing than we began with. And I don't, I'm not taking cr- luck than anything else, but I, I wouldn't expect law enforcement to be able to understand this problem and figure it out. And this was somebody who had a team of people with an exorbitant amount of time to really dig deep. And there just aren't those people out there working, missing people doing that.
0: Dave, is the same criterion used, for example, somebody at home doesn't see a relative, you know, get back home tonight? Police usually tells you you have to wait 24 hours before you can report the person missing. Is that the same criterion used when somebody gets lost in a national park, or is it a different set of criteria used?
1: You know, the criteria for for reporting missing people has changed a lot over the years. Before, it used to be 24 hours Now it's changed, and most of the time, law enforcement jumps on it right away. When somebody goes missing in the woods, it's usually a critical issue very, very fast because of weather conditions, because maybe they're hurt, maybe they're lost, maybe they need... It could be a lot different than somebody who's missing in an urban environment, but then again, both cases could need attention immediately. So I don't think when somebody's reported missing especially a very young person in an urban environment, it's not delayed, it's handled, it's worked on right away. Just like anybody who goes missing in the woods, there's a reaction to it and people are on it quickly.
0: And I know you don't like to give your opinion, and I won't ask for your opinion, but after so many years of investigating, do you think that the field of suspects is narrowing?
1: Well, I've had a lot of response to the new book that's out, and I think the surprising aspect that people find is that there's more parameters that are added in this new book than there were in other books. Um, There's a group of people who went missing on the ocean off the coast of Florida. There's a parallel between people we've reported missing and missing airplanes. Uh, Somebody in Finland did a phenomenal amount of work and gave us a report indicating that, there were 100 and I think 25 planes in 68 years that have disappeared in the Bermuda Triangle yeah. and four of those incidents match dates of people who have disappeared that we've written about. And if you look at those statistics, the statistical probability that those would match at four different levels is pretty phenomenal.
0: What do you think the correlation is between these planes disappearing and and the people disappearing. Is there a weather phenomenon taking place at the same time?
1: Yes, there is, and that's that's part of that profile. But even taking it one step further, we revealed in this book that there's also four aircraft. No, correct that. Five aircraft that have crashed while looking for people missing that we've profiled. So you have. So now you have four planes missing in the Bermuda Triangle that match the dates of four people who have planes have crashed while looking for missing people. So you could almost say there's some kind of unusual aerial phenomena in conjunction with the missing people, in conjunction with the weather phenomena we've identified with the missing people. So aerial, weather, planes, I don't know what to say about it, but there seems to be a current of commonality there.
0: I remember growing up in the 70s one of the corners of the Bermuda Triangle in the Caribbean and this is what started me in the paranormal road if you will was the the fact that almost on a monthly basis I would see the newspaper of you know planes or ships you know getting lost almost like the the, the latest Malaysian airline you know flight I think that's a different story but we don't see that anymore. Yet we continue seeing missing people all over the world, even from the 1800s, sharing the same, the same way in, the, in, in which they were lost. Do you still see the same patterns from a hundred or two hundred years ago still happening today?
1: You know, it hasn't changed. It's uh, it's consistent with that profile, going all the way back to a case in 1756 that we identified. So the the real question comes back is if there was a way. To go back into time 500 years ago, was it happening then at the same consistency with the same profile? Maybe. But the, the real interesting part to us is that that profile has stayed pretty consistent amongst the four books without having to really tweak it. it it's the same, like, like you identified earlier, there is that commonality amongst these cases that is troublesome,
0: when you have spoken to the National Park Service and the Department of Interior about their method of dealing with missing people, how in good conscience could they not track missing people? What have they told you when you asked that question?
1: So I've only talked to the uh, head of the law enforcement group from the National Park Service one time about the Stacey Harris case and why they wouldn't uh, supply it. And then we got into a more deep discussion about why I wanted the information and and why I wanted to know so much about missing people inside their system. So they really don't and won't talk too much. I suppose the the most revealing thing happened when I was at a national park this last summer with a friend. And we happened to uh, stumble into a informal meeting amongst four older gentlemen in a satellite office of a national park. And I kind of stood there listening to what they were saying and I knew these guys knew a lot about what was happening so one of the gentlemen got out and walked to the parking lot and I followed him out and I introduced myself and I said I was a retired law enforcement man and I said I could tell you were somehow re-
2: thank you for listening to unlock the full two-hour interview including video formats downloads transcripts exclusive articles and more subscribe to Veritas plus now